Hey guys, Reef here from Evolve Play. Today I'm here with Frank Forensic from Exuberant Animal. Um, Frank is one of the really kind of early thinkers on applying the paleo idea to movement practice. One of the early thinkers on kind of connecting the idea of physical culture with broader concepts in evolution, in neurobiology, in a lot of really interesting kind of connections to how the body should move. Um, I ran into Frank's work about eight years ago. Uh, he and I were both living in Seattle at the time. We got to have dinner a few times, um, helped him organize an event, and uh, found a lot of inspiration in his work at the time, but we kind of drifted apart, and I hadn't really been looking at it as much until a friend of ours, uh, Jason C. Brown, started uh, sharing his work with me again. And it was amazing because over those eight years, I had evolved a lot of similar perspectives to the stuff that I saw Frank kind of saying before maybe anybody else that I could find. Um, around that time. So Frank's just here in Leavenworth. It's a beautiful snowy day and uh, I thought it'd be great to kind of come up and have a conversation with Frank about movement and the growth of the, the movement world and how this broader evolutionary perspective and this play perspective can kind of help people really uh, address that in their lives in a much more powerful way. So Frank, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Yeah. So first question I like to ask people is kind of what with all these ideas that you've come to what is the kind of the root of your movement practice right now what is it that you're really excited about with your movement what really turns me on right now is um, public health believe it or not okay. because what has um, I, I think a lot of athletes go through this growth and development phase where they train really hard and, and get their movement working for them and really enjoy the process. And eventually you succeed. I mean, you get, you get the movement skills that you want to get and then you start to look around at the world and you start to see that a lot of people aren't as fortunate as we are. And it's very easy to, to see the decay of public health and to see the problems in the world with the human body. And that leads to this whole other exploration of why did this happen and why are people's bodies suffering so much? And that is, is just fascinating to me because now you start to, it's not just about movement anymore, now it's about things like culture and it's about history and it's even about things like policy. You know, what are we gonna do to regain our health as a people? So that's what really intrigues me right now, but I'm still interested. I still love to move and I still enjoy climbing and martial arts and uh, play with other people and these kind of things. So um, I, I'd like to have my hand in all of it. That's great. And uh, that actually kind of ties right into a really core piece of both of our work that is this idea of play, because why do we have a culture that's so physically decayed? The, the thing that I'm always thinking about is where's the motivation? Mm -hmm. right? Why do mm -hmm. kids inherently are motivated to move and play? What happened to our physical culture? So I'm curious to hear you kind of really talk about how did we lose that and, and what can we do to kind of bring that back? Right. Well, well, part of the problem and a lot of a lot of writers on the human body and human history have talked about this. Uh, this idea that we're predisposed to sloth. We're predisposed to relax. That would have been our life 
on the grassland, on the savanna was, was really difficult and we are predisposed to take it easy whenever possible. So it's almost like we're programmed to rest and that's, that's part of it. But beyond that, and, and you bring up children, I think part of it's really cultural right now, this professionalization of youth sports that we see everywhere now where we're starting kids really young in movement specialties that take them right out of play. We, we start um, training them with really highly disciplined procedures for sets and reps and doing movements in a particular way. So now they, they become adept at a movement specialty, but they really want to play. And this is a common complaint in youth sports, a common complaint of the children. They say, we want to play. We, that's the thing we want most. And we take that away from them because we want to make children's sports like the pros. And that, that's a big mistake. So that's, that's one of our problems. Yeah. It's interesting. I tend to think of the play drive as an appetite for movement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that it's something that we, we all actually have. We all inherently have an appetite to move, mm -hmm. and when we're regularly exposed to move, we recognize the nutrition from different types of movement. In the same way that when we're regularly exposed to a kind of a broad variety of food, we recognize, oh, my body needs green vegetables right now, my body needs this. And kind of my perception is that we, as a culture, we have taught people not to move. Mm -hmm. And then we've taught them to kind of try to get all of that movement nutrition in a really limited way. Right. And so, yeah, we're programmed to rest, but like animals that are rested and well-fed play mm -hmm. because that's how they develop skills. That's how they hone themselves to be able to, you know, um, move well. Right. So, you know, what do you see as the, the way that we as a culture can kind of reframe the way that we think about movement so that we can start harvesting that motivation and give people this freedom to play? Well, I think something that we're really going to dive into here is this distinction between romantic and classical. And to the short answer here is that I think we as a culture now are overboard with classical forms of education where it's all about measurement and units and hierarchy and precision and discipline of delivering content and trying to achieve some kind of result. And I think that uh, we need perhaps to go to more of an experiential or a romantic point of view on the body and just let's focus on the experience and worry less about the achievement that we're trying to crank out the, at the other end. And if we, if we focus on a good quality achievement, not just for kids, but for us too, then we're gonna liberate some of that play drive. Say, hey, let's have a good experience. <laughs> let's not worry about tomorrow so much. It's such a powerful thing because we, you know, we have a greater power to measure things than we've ever had. And in trying to get any goal, being able to set up these measurements and these tools can help us get there. But so often it seems to me that we find that the goal is not was not actually the reason that we started the journey mm -hmm. in the first place. Mm -hmm. And if we get lost in the goal, then we're maybe missing the whole point. Right, right. And I think uh, things like 
the Fitbit and all the fitness trackers, that kind of thing. I personally, I don't find that to be attractive. I, I think it's a distraction and it takes us away from the experience of moving our bodies and we become more like data collectors. And that, that's part of the problem as well. This focus on, on goals and on like achievement, it can be powerful, but at the same time, you know, I think it's very limiting to people because if you, if you say everybody who's gonna run, everybody should run, mm -hmm. we're all gonna run and now we're gonna measure who wins every time. Right. <laughs> Well, you have a small group of people who end up winning and a lot of people who end up not enjoying running nearly as much. Right. And that's kind of seeped into the whole culture of the movement, it seems like to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of people see my videos and they, they, they say, you know, well, I could never do that or I'll never reach that level or I'm 25 or I'm 35 or I'm 18 and I feel like I'm too old to kind of take <laughs> on. Right. It's crazy how young people think they're too old in our culture to move. Hmm. Um, and I'm always like, well, maybe you won't ever jump from one waterfall to another. Like, and you know what? You can have an immensely valuable journey. You can have a more valuable journey without ever achieving that because it's not about there's a saying in mountain climbing, it's not what the man is to the mountain, it's what the mountain is to the man. <laughs> That's good. And so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting point about we need to um, kind of get involved in the, give people permission to mm -hmm. focus on the joy of the moment. Right, right. And I think that really means de-emphasizing competition. Um, competition is such a big feature of the white man's culture and we find ways to introduce competition into almost everything that we do now and that that produces some incredible achievements but it also extracts a big cost and i i hate to see it overdone yeah but, um, it has its place but yeah, the classical. So can you just explain what classical versus romantic approach is? A right, bit? this is a distinction from, well, a little bit of background. I went to teacher education school and I found it to be extremely frustrating because they gave us this incredible hodgepodge of ideas about how to become educated or how to teach something. And I found it just tremendously frustrating. So I, I did a lot of background work and I happened across a short essay by Alfred North Whitehead, um, philosopher, mathematician. And he looked at education and he said, look, look there's, there's advocates for freedom, there's advocates for discipline, and they're always fighting with each other. Can't we have a system that oscillates between the two? And now we have two poles, one where there's freedom, the other where there's discipline, and each one has its place. So you have a rhythm where you have a phase or a period of highly disciplined training that gives way now to a romantic experience and then back into a disciplined phase. And so what he describes, and it's really interesting to read this because it's called the rhythmic claims of freedom and discipline. And it, he sounds like a Taoist in there because he's talking about rhythm and oscillation. And it's great. So, and it's a way to have it both ways. 
And this, this is something that we don't see. The typical education process doesn't include both of these. It, it's usually either some sort of hardcore discipline training or some free-for-all where the participants are encouraged to do whatever they want. And that's okay too, but the best result comes in putting them together. It's, um, for my money, that's, that's the future. That's the way to go, is teach teachers how to deliver both kinds of experience to people. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I had a, a, a creative writing class in college, and we had this completely romantic approach. Like, mm -hmm. everybody mm -hmm. can write, all writing is good, just write lots of pages. Right. And at the end of it, I didn't feel like I learned anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've tended to go the opposite way, to be very kind of scientific and analytical in the way that I've wanted to approach training. And, and there's been a lot of value, a lot of progression within that. But what I found is that, you know, there's a point at which the motivation tends to go away. Right. There's a, and in teaching my students, what I found is as I've kind of pulled back some of the technical aspects, mm -hmm. leaving enough structure there, but giving them a lot more room to kind of fill out the scaffolding. Right. The progression and the engagement is just grown by leaps and bounds. Right. And within my personal practice, I find there's this really interesting oscillation where I'll go through periods. I, I went, when I first started evolving play, I went like, I'm just going to see what play does for me. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to go outside every day and find the way that I want to move. And, and I made a lot of progress for a while, and then I hit a wall. And I was like, my body needs this discipline aspect. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So I've been kind of trying to find that that wave. Right, right. Between this um, this aspect of a classical approach and a romantic approach. Or, you know, I was having a conversation in the last podcast with Kelly Starrett, we talked about this idea of a formal movement language versus moving in nature mm -hmm. and being adaptive in your movement and how they can feed each other. Right. And so I, I, I wanted to kind of bring, bring that idea back around to you and say, like, how do we use discipline to kind of feed us the tools that we need to be able to play at a very high level. Right. And then bring enough play in so that we can refuel ourselves and have that motivation to, mm. to stay on the path. Right. Well, I was fortunate. I had a martial art teacher who I, I thought struck a really nice balance with this. Because the, the figure everybody's talking about now is that, you know, it's 10,000 hours to achieve mastery in any uh, discipline, whatever it is. And... You know, that's roughly the time to get a black belt, you might say. And he was really quite good because there were times and circumstances where he was a hardcore disciplinarian. So you stand here, you do this kick, you do this punch, you do it exactly the way I'm telling you. But he also allowed for slack in the system. There were times um, during the training week and the training month where we could just do this playful sparring. And it was just whatever you want to do. That's okay. And the, the sort of paradox here is that the more discipline you bring, the more fun you can have. You, once you set up the boundaries and tell people to play within those boundaries, beautiful things start to happen. The problem is if you don't have any boundaries, now the, the play field is too wide and people don't really know what to do. And it's, it's the same thing in music instruction, too. You, it, if you let people have the, the entire fretboard or the entire keyboard and tell them just to play, 
it's too big, it's too much. So instead you give them one chord or one scale, one, one note even, you know, you just play it, play it. How, what can you get out of that small limited thing? And then the teacher opens up the boundaries a little bit more. Yeah, that's, a, that's an idea I really like of, of how we create constraints mm -hmm. with this, uh, an amount of freedom inside them that right. kind of optimizes the creativity of the learner right. at a given point. And this comes up in a really interesting place. I read a book um, called Story by Robert McKee, and he's a screenwriter in Hollywood, and he actually teaches screenwriters. And this is a point he hammers over, over and again is this idea of creative limitation. He says, artists want to be free, but that freedom, if, if it's too much, then your artists will not produce a great work. There's got to be creative limitations, and that forces the artist to dig a little bit deeper into their capability. And that's where this whole idea of neuroplasticity comes in too, because limitation, limitation, now you're asking the nervous system for more and you play to discover what that more is. So those two ideas really fit together nice. <laughs> Freedom and limitation, in a sense, only exist because of each other. Mm. Right? Like this, this, this Taoist dualism, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, that the inverse of two things can only exist because two, th two inverses rely on each other. Right. And I, I, this is a powerful idea to me because I think you know there's this tendency within Western culture to be so focused on freedom and so individualized that we we end up with this really bizarre idea almost of of the individual being able to act completely separate from other influences mm -hmm. as the kind of epitome of freedom. Right. And to me, that sounds like sociopathy. <laughs> Right. Like, to me, a grown, cultivated self, yes, you, you create a potential for power and potential to, to do things, mm -hmm. but it's always wrapped in a social web. And you, you never have complete freedom because you're always having to think about, you know, if you're pulling oil out of the ground, is it affecting the water? Right. right. If, you're, if you're practicing singing in the middle of the night, is it affecting the neighbors? And, and this web of, uh, of, of constraints with, with the, the growth of freedoms, I think, you know, it's such a powerful idea, not just in, in moving, but in, in really like the art of living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the thing I would add there is that this idea, this really strong emphasis on freedom that's so much a part of American culture, that's really unusual in the context of human history and human cultures. Most indigenous native cultures have always talked about continuity and connection and relationship and you won't hear those cultures talk very much about freedom at all because in order to survive in a outdoor setting you have to have a lot of connection to your tribe and to the natural world and you don't hear them talk about freedom very much yeah it's an interesting interesting point it is a you know, I think that we, in the West, we have, there's some really tremendous value that gets, that comes from that individual, mm -hmm. individualization and that freedom, but we don't necessarily see the, the costs. Right. And, then, right. Um, and 
and that's important. You know, that's kind of the, I think, a really interesting aspect of this whole mismatch conversation. Mm -hmm. um, when I think about that, you know, I, I like to emphasize that we we live in the most affluent period in history. We have, you know, I my my phone gives me powers <laughs> of communication, powers of knowledge attainment, powers of um, mapping mm -hmm. that have never existed in human history. I'm right. a magician by yeah. most Wizard. historical yeah. periods. <laughs> And, and in a lot of ways, that's great. And, you know, I'm having this conversation with you because of someone posting your stuff on the internet. Right. I have friends all over the world. And yet, we, we're so fast and we're adopting things so quickly that we're not recognizing the costs. Right, right. And, and we live in this, this alien environment. <laughs> right. You have this idea that you're talking about of the long body, the mm -hmm. fact that we have this great continuity with the past, with the world around us, with the people around us. Right. And that when we change things really fast, it's easy for that to get lost. Right. Right. So could you talk a little bit more about, more about that? Well, just the long body is a Native American idea, but it a similar idea shows up all across Native indigenous cultures. And the idea being that the the boundary of the body is not the skin. The body actually extends out into the world and includes your habitat and your tribe. And these are your life support systems. And the key word there is continuity because the connection between our bodies and our habitat, our bodies and our tribe, it, it's not just mystical and it's not just something that occurs in the imagination. It's an actual physical reality. And when we, it, it ranges from things like circadian rhythm and the way the light impacts our physiology and resynchronizes our physiology every day to the way that other people's bodies influence us and our emotions and our, our through the mirror neuron system. The, the continuities are astonishing and to talk about people as individuals is starting to look really kind of um, distorted and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So it's, it's also really interesting because it's a Native American idea, but it's also validated by modern science. So this word continuity shows up everywhere now. It shows up in Native culture, but it shows up in science too. And it's, uh, it's something we're gonna have to come to grips with pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's part of the Western tradition too. Like if you, if you think about f philosophy has been interrogating the concept of the self mm -hmm. for a really long time. When you dig down into it, a self is actually a difficult thing to define. And there has been a, a dialectic about that for a really long time. Right. And you know, various theological traditions are obviously talking about um, being one with God. Mm -hmm. And everyone is, to some degree, one with God. You have certainly the idea of, of, of duty to to the church, duty to the family, duty to the nation, or um, whatever it is. So we, I think there there is that uh, this this concept really throughout the world. Though I agree that we we kind of we live in the most individualized world 
ever. Right. Right. And the flip side of this long body orientation is what I call the short body orientation. And you can see this all around. So we practice short fitness, short medicine. Um, both of these are similar, where we take the body in isolation and attempt to make it better. We attempt to either increase its athletic performance or its health. And we don't ask questions about habitat and tribe. You go to the doctor, the doctor isn't going to ask you about your habitat, typically. Um, it's not going to ask you very much, if at all, about your social circumstances. And this is short body health, short body medicine, and we do short body training with a lot of people too. It's like we, we don't, we just give them a bunch of sets and reps to do and forget about the context. So yeah. we have a context shortage in our world. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting connection back to what we're talking about with the early specialization in sports. It's one of the central principles of kind of Western physical culture is this idea of specific adaption to impose demand. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you want your child to be a world-class soccer player, then they got to play soccer. That seems obvious. But what we are missing is sort of the context of <laughs> right. what all those other people who became world-class soccer players had. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there, the body is not kind of a one, one output thing. And if you try to make it a one output thing, mm -hmm. we tend to break. Um, so I think that's a, an interesting idea. Again, specialization and not seeing this broader context of you have, you have to be a human first. Right. Right. And you go back to the original forms of human movement, which would be gathering first and then hunting and then dancing. Those are not really specializations. Um, hunting, perhaps, if, but even there, most hunters were opportunists. You go out on the grassland and you're going to hunt whatever animal happens to be in season or happens to be coming through your habitat. And you're probably not going to specialize in any one hunting form, any one hunting movement. And then the same thing with dancing. Early dance, I'm sure, was you would mimic certain animals, but you would gesture and try and communicate, use that gesture to communicate. So specialization is kind of a recent thing. Yeah, it's been a powerful thing for us. Yes. <laughs> I think it's kind of interesting because, you know, there's a, there's a debate right now about the people in the Americas. Mm -hmm. So we have this Clovis model mm -hmm. of, of the people in the Americas where basically these uh, megafauna hunters right. through big spears uh, kind of came through about 13,000 years ago. And we're seeing more and more information now that, that there was someone here before that. Mm -hmm. And what it looks like is that there was a people who had a technology around um, gathering uh, marine animals, mm -hmm, hunting mm -hmm. and gathering marine resources. And what's interesting is they seem to have not kind of picked up the megafauna hunting. Mm. And then they seem to have been um, possibly replaced by the people who came out as megafauners. Mm -hmm. So there is this this tendency within human cultures to kind of end up focused on it, on a, a kind of an individual skill set. Um, even in animals, we can see this, like there are... Uh, 
lion prides that are specialists on elephants mm -hmm. or lion prides that are specialists on wildebeest, mm -hmm. um, orca whales. Mm -hmm. Some orcas are really big on salmon, some orca whales are really big on something else. Right. So there is that element um, that has been there, but you know, the, the rise of modern technology really is the story of, of specializing in more and more tight spaces. <laughs> I, I, I give this analogy sometimes that we have a culture that has more global knowledge than ever, mm -hmm. but the width of the knowledge of the individual has been narrowed right, beyond right. any reasonable <laughs> amount. Yeah, yeah. Garrison Keeler makes that point. He says nobody knows how to do anything anymore, you know, like a farmer would, because now we have such tight specializations. Yeah, I love this term that's come kind of within the, the fitness world, I guess, now, movement culture, right? Mm -hmm. Where we think about our movement practices as, as a culture, as a tradition. And, and to me, it connects to this broader idea of, of culture, right? When traditionally there are martial arts in every culture, there are dance practices in every culture. So, and everybody participated in these, right? Now most people participate in no physical activity. So in <laughs> right. a sense, they've lost their movement culture. Right. And I think you can go down the list and find this over and over again. Before we had radios, people sang and played instruments. Right. So how many people are carriers of musical culture now? Only the specialists. Only the yeah. specialists, yeah. yeah. How many people can find a medicinal plant, a plant that you can eat? So we were talking about this idea of, of movement culture as kind of a component of somebody's broader culture and how people are the bearers of less and less of the overall culture. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm curious about your observations this and, and how you think that affects people. Well, I think in a lot of ways our culture systematically disempowers people because when all you've got is one little specialization, you're incredibly vulnerable. And especially if that doesn't feed your health and feed your body in some way. Um, one, I, I spent a lot of time studying stress, and one thing that uh, comes up over and over again is this idea of control, the power of control. If you, you, if you have some sense of control over your circumstances, then your stress will de decline, obviously. And what's one of the best ways to get a sense of control? to move your body and that's what I think is really going on with exercise is what that people benefit from exercise not so much because of the exercise but the fact that they've gained a sense of control that's the most intimate kind of control you can have is the ability to move your body as you choose as you see fit and you go to the gym or you go outdoors or you go you, you go play now all of a sudden you feel better because you are empowered, you are in control of your own life, your own circumstances. And by, by living in a culture that doesn't honor the body, we, we disempower people in a, in a big way. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting. We, you know, we touched on this idea earlier that you know we live in a time of, of unmatched affluence, right? We live in a time where people have far less risk of disease, far less risk of murder, far less risk of, of, of violence, and yet we also live in a time where, where people have epidemics of anxiety and depression. Right. It's you know I getting a little mystical here, but I, I almost feel like there's a deep-seated, like human beings evolved to, in a context where they needed these broad scales of competence mm -hmm. for a really long time, and I think that we inherently start feeling that we're missing something. Yes. If, you, if you can't make a fire, if you can't hunt, if you can't gather, if you can't build anything, like, you're, you're an incredibly vulnerable thing when you yes. take away the broader culture. Right, right. I think... I think that's part of it, um, and what I'm more confident about is just that people don't have sources of self-worth. Right? If you if you were a great singer in a tribe, that was a source of self-worth. Right. If you were a good hunter, if you were a good forager, if you know how to find this thing, if you were the great mushroom finder, all these things became places that a, somebody could kind of harvest a sense of self-worth. Mm -hmm. And as we become more and more specialized, there's there's fewer things that we can kind of call our own mm -hmm. and can draw value from. Right. So I think that we you know we live in this culture where people talk a lot about the value of self-esteem, mm -hmm. but we don't have a, a plan right now to develop selves that are worth esteeming. <laughs> right. And it would help if we started with the body. Started with movement. Yeah, that's no matter how you slice it. That's that's what we need to get back to. And that's that's core to our experience. Yeah, and that's that's why you know my work move. You know, I evolve and play. I call I call the slogan for my brand is move like a human because I think that um, it's it's probably the easiest place to start mm -hmm. reclaiming this culture, this humanness. Right. Uh, I, I know your, your recent book, the, the Beautiful Practice, kind of posits the same thing. Mm -hmm. There's all these cultural practices that are really value, valuable, but the root starts in the body and cultivating the body. Right. So we should talk a little bit more about kind of why you think that's the best place to start. Well, because it's ancient, because it's so old, and things that are old tend to be powerful. Um, the, the common time frame that people work with here, they say, well, the human species is 200,000 years old, roughly a quarter of a million years old, which seems like a long time, but it's really not because our bodies are actually far, far older than that. And it, it, it depends where you draw the line, but millions of years, certainly, tens of millions of years, mammals, 120 million years, vertebrates, 500 million years. So by moving and by being physical, we become continuous with this, this ancient history, something that is, is far more powerful than we realize, and it's far more powerful than just the, the glossy magazine exercise stuff. No, this is, this is substantial, this is ancient, this is really primal. And it's, um, it's not just about looking good. And it's not just about even 
in some ways it's more important even than health. You know, it, this is this is connecting to the ancient biosphere, and nothing else can do it except moving our bodies. Yeah, I mentioned to you off camera before we were uh, we started this interview that my friend Simon Thacker um, has a, a blog called Ancestral Movement. He really works on this idea of kind of discovering the inner ancestor, right? whether that ancestor is the inner worm, the inner fish, the inner ape, all these things, we have characteristics that weren't changed. They developed first and then they've been conserved by evolution because they mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. right? We're a big tube. Right. We move around with our face first because that worked as worms. Right. Our spines move in certain ways because those are the, the initial characteristics of chordates. Um, I think this is a really interesting idea, and I, I, I really, you know, I remember when we first encountered an exuberant animal eight years ago, you had this beautiful mandala of health, mm -hmm. right? You took the idea of mind, body, and spirit and expanded it to talk about the land and the ancestors. Right. And so in this sense, when we return to the trees, we're, in a way, giving respect to the monkeys as our ancestors, <laughs> right. the apes as our ancestors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When we practice moving around on the ground, we're, we're going back to being quadrupedal animals. Right. Squirming on the ground, we're going back to being <laughs> these things. So, um, yeah, I wanted to just kind of get you to expand on this idea of why, why is a sense of our ancestry an important component of our health? Well, just look at the nervous system. And you don't even know, have to know that much about the nervous system to realize that an ancient, a very simple ancient nervous system would have had motor commands, motor pathways, but those pathways would only be useful if there was some sort of sensation coming back. So it's a cybernetic system, but it's a conversational system. And that goes back hundreds of millions of years. So when we move our bodies, especially outdoors in nature, we're setting up this natural conversation between habitat and nervous system that um, it's, it's call and response, you know, and it, it put, makes the nervous system work in context, in the context that it worked in for millions of years. And that is why that kind of experience is so powerful. We're, we're reenacting things that we've done for a very long time. Yeah. And we, you know, when I teach people, I take them into the trees. And I get them in the trees and I, and I say, you know, you have binocular vision because your ancestors came from the trees. Right. You have grasping hands because your ancestors came from the trees. The origination of a shoulder that has a full range of motion is from animals that hung from tree limbs. Right. That's why we have a flat chest. That's why we have <laughs> upright torso orientation. So we rediscover the human body in a lot of ways when we just climb a tree. The other uh, element there is the fact that, and a lot of people don't realize this, the muscular system is a sensory system because embedded in all the muscles and the tendons and the ligaments are mechanoreceptors so every time you move your body, you're flooding sensation back into the nervous system, which gives us a sense of identity and a sense of who we are in the world, where we are in the world. These are 
really fundamental things. In contrast, what happens when people are sedentary in the modern world, they suffer um, what you might call a sensation deficit. They're not getting that sensation anymore. And lo and behold, they start to feel anxious. They start to feel unhappy and really kind of jittery because they're kind of living in space. That's what it feels like when you're sedentary. Yeah. I, I was a really active kid. I lived, I grew up in a hippie community out in the woods. I was homeschooled after third grade. So I had a lot of time to kind of just move around in the woods. And but what happened is when my kind of my tribe broke down and all my friends stopped being available because they were getting busy with middle school. Right. And people weren't there to, to play and move with, I became really sedentary and I sat on my computer all the time and read and I, I literally had this feeling of like being, being just disconnected from my body and realizing how trapped inside my own head I was. Right, right. And that's when I kind of came back to movement practice and started picking up gymnastics and martial arts and basketball. Right. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really powerful concept that, that we need this. If you, um, I'm sure you've t- I've talked about this before, but you know, babies, if they're not touched, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll die. Right. We, we are shaped literally by the things around us, by touch. Katie Bowman um, talks about the fact that every cell in the body responds to the way that it's loaded. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're not experiencing the types of loading of the tissues that was characteristic of the ancestral environment, so that means walking barefoot over rough ground, mm-hmm. that means sitting, standing, lying down on a variety of surfaces, then you're not you're not feeding those cells right. what they have needed to function optimally. You're not moving your lymph around. You're not creating the structural integrity of the individual cell. And uh, you know, reading your book, uh, your books, your work, it's interesting because you're you're kind of finding the same idea. Touch is important. Tactile sensation is important, but more from a neurological perspective. So she's saying that the cell needs it to be healthy, to be right. strong, to build its cytoskeleton. Right. But also we need it because the brain is not, isn't able to even feed itself without. Mm-hmm. Gotta have that touch, and that touch comes either from, from people, or from the habitat, mm-hmm. or from motion. Yeah. It's all, all forms of touch. And this is where I think the medical community has really fallen short, because people go in to see a physician, and depending on which survey you read, doctors really don't ask about exercise or movement very much. And uh, there was a report just this week from NPR about back pain and a big uh, meta-study of of many studies. They they discovered that exercise is the best treatment for back pain. And also they discovered that doctors rarely ask or prescribe exercise for back pain. And I think it's a sensory thing. I think that's why exercise works is because you develop more sensation in your torso and now all of a sudden, wow, your, your body feels a lot more, um, there's a lot more information to work with. And motor maps are yeah. better refined. Yeah, so uh, that I think is, is the future, is uh, healing ourselves through movement and, um, and use of the body. Yeah, another friend of mine who I want to introduce you to is Todd Hargrove. Mm-hmm. And his work is a lot about how pain 
is is something that happens in the brain, right? Not something that, that's local to the tissues. And right. It's about how it's interpreted. Right. And a lot of issues that, with pain that we have are because the we, the body's not getting the information from the cells mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the local tissues in a way that is coherent. So the, the map breaks down and it's not used. Mm -hmm. So if we sit in a chair all day and our back only has one position, that's a back that's not feeding a ton of information to the nervous system. Right, right. It develops a poor connection and potentially becomes a, a source of pain. Right. Yeah, it's all cybernetics. I mean, we hear this term cyborg. Yeah. And we think robot, but really we're we're all cyborgs, we're cybernetic organisms, and we depend on that feedback to come into the nervous system so we'll have something to work with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we have. The self cannot exist without the external right. world. Right. It has to be informed. Right. And that's what we're trying to do in this modern technological world is we're, we're trying to create um, autonomous organisms. I mean, this whole idea of getting in a spacecraft and going to Mars, uh, I find just completely intolerable. I mean, I, I, there are people signing up to do that. Yeah. And I, I think of that as a really scary proposition to be lost in space like that. That's interesting. One of my good friends is a person who's like super into that idea. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's strange to me because I, I wouldn't want to be on a spaceship to Mars. Right. Because I feel like we're still just learning how to live on Earth. <laughs> right. Like we're, 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 you know, we talk about all the evolutionary mismatch problems. Mm -hmm. like one question I've thought about Mars is like, so Mars has 0 0.37 gravity. How does a pregnancy work? Right? How do all these human systems work? Right. Those systems right. are adapted through billions of years to life here on Earth. On the other side, like from an evolutionary standpoint too, it's, it's very exciting because mm -hmm. a planet is a really vulnerable thing. <laughs> there are more planets that humans live on than we are more robust. But... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm more like you. I, I lean more towards, like, let's uh, let's approach these things with some caution and right. some, some respect for, for the fact that we we are Earthlings. Yeah, and it's exactly. not going to be so easy to become anything else. Let's solve this mismatch first. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I mean, we're, we're opening a whole kind of worms. And I think it's actually an interesting sort of... It's an interesting illustration of the broader sort of critique of the modern world that I think we're getting at here, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is this concept that we have power and we can do great things with it, but without knowledge of ourselves, we don't realize the costs of what we're right. doing. Right. When culture changes so fast, it's hard to remember what's lost. You know, my, my father um, grew up in, with, before uh, electricity, he lived up the end of a dirt road, right, in mm -hmm. a, on, a, on a farm that his grandfather had homestead in the Skagit Valley. So he grew up in this super rural situation, and he basically didn't have TV, didn't have radio, didn't have video games. And the really interesting thing is, when, I, when he was in his late 40s, he built a diving board. And 
he's out there one day, and he bounces on the diving board three times, goes up and does a front flip into a dive into the water, clean entry. And I'd never do, seen him do a flip in my entire life. I was like, where did that come from? Right. And so I started kind of quizzing him about his movement, and, and it's like, oh, it turns out that all the stuff we're doing now with physical culture, like, it wasn't called parkour then, it was just how kids entertain themselves. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I, I came out with this video recently, The Waterfall, and there's a, there's a video of me climbing through this, this hole in a waterfall up in Bellingham. Mm -hmm. And so I showed it to my dad. I said, oh man, it must have been really scary to climb up through that. We only ever went down. <laughs> And I, you know, I didn't even know my dad had ever even been to that place. Right, right. But it goes to this idea that a lot of these cultural things that we're trying to rediscover right now, they've been around. Right. But they weren't recognized. My dad didn't think of all of the ways that he played in the woods as an important part of the culture that he needed to pass on to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when all of my friends were playing video games and not spending time in the woods, people didn't recognize the value of what was being lost. Mm -hmm. And this is where like Richard Lou's work becomes really valuable and right. just helping us wake up right. to what we are losing. Yeah, it reminds me of um, the story of Jim Thorpe mm -hmm. because um, a lot of pundits declare him to be one of the greatest athletes that ever lived. And he grew up, I think it was in the, the backwoods of Oklahoma. Yeah. And he, he rode horses and chopped wood and ran through the woods and he lived a very natural lifestyle until one day he showed up at the college and decided to try out for the football team and he excelled, but uh, he didn't have any sophisticated training. It was all, uh, it was all natural. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of stories like that about like Herschel Walker mm. and there's this idea in, in, um, in the strength and fitness, uh, strength and conditioning world for for team sports of somebody who's farm boy strong. Mm -hmm. And I, I like to think of that now as human strong. Mm -hmm. Because when we when we take something like a barbell, a barbell is an incredibly powerful tool to increase the strength of the prime movers in the body really quickly. But um, to get someone that strong, but people used to get that strong, were that strong, but through a much more diverse sort of movement practice and when your hands are only gripping something that's a specific width mm -hmm. and there's all these all these degrees of strength that are being lit, uh, missed in the grip mm -hmm. strength. Mm -hmm. if you put a barbell on your back you'll get a bruise across the top of your shoulder mm -hmm. it goes away over time because that tissue adapts but what's happening to the rest of your body but if you're bailing hay if you're carrying yokes if you're doing all these things right you literally are creating, I think, a much more resilient body for any sport. Right. right. Yeah. Blue collar stuff, farming, all that stuff is good. Moving <laughs> like a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Climbing ladders, digging holes, shoveling snow, all that stuff is worth doing. Yeah. <laughs> Costume change. Yes. <laughs> Get a little chilly. Okay, guys, we're back here with Frank, who's now got a sweater on because it's gotten a little bit cold. Um, had to take a break, adjust the cameras. So we were talking about um, kind of how natural movement has made people strong throughout history. Um, one of the things that, that you've emphasized a lot that's a big emphasis for me, obviously, is, is the importance of the natural world in training. So I, I wanted to, to kind of
get your, your take on, on why it's so important that people take on a physical practice, but a physical practice that engages them with the outdoor natural world, not just the urban environment or the indoors environment. Right. Well, the short answer is that we're built for it. And every detail of our anatomy and our physiology is built for it. And again, going back to the deep time argument is that, I mean, just the, the finest detail of our sensitivity, everything is adapted to the natural world. And by going into gyms and indoor environments where everything's plastic and smooth, we're depriving ourselves of sensation. So outdoors is, is always going to be better. And it feels better, too. And it looks better in general. Um, so it's more pleasing to our sensibilities. There's an aesthetic quality that's, that's pleasing to us also. So, and, and it um, encourages diversity. You walk on a trail or you run on a trail, every step is slightly different. And um, even if you run the same trail over and over again, you get seasonal variations and weather variations. And so every time you have to adapt in a slightly new way. So it's, um, it's by far the best. <laughs> yeah, so this is a, you know, obviously I, I 100% agree. I think there's, I think there's a, just an enormous amount of reasons that when we start measuring the difference in, in adaption to whether it's cold or dry, or cold or wet, cold or warm, wet or dry, mm -hmm. whether, you know, the types of surfaces that our feet are uh, mm -hmm. adapting to, you know, phytochemicals coming from the trees. Right. There's probably innumerable reasons, but people have known this forever. You can go back to the Taoists and say, study nature, move, right, right? right. traditional movement practices often, Georges Hubert, you need to move outside, you need to develop your rusticity. Um, but one of them that's a personal passion of mine is just the beauty aspect that yeah. you, you talk about. Uh, my training is usually these days on uh, at the beach at Karki Park or Golden Gardens or Discovery Park in Seattle because they're near my house. and. I, uh, so I walk, you know, I'm in the city and I don't like being in the city. And so I'm on my computer working and not enjoying that. I mean, it's, it's good. I love the work that I do, but it's still sitting on a computer. Right. And, and so I get a, every day I walk down into the park and, you know, as I walk down the park, it's so easy to kind of let go of mm -hmm. everything. And so frequently I'll have an animal sighting. So I'll have a bald eagle that'll fly overhead. Right. Lately I've been swimming in the ocean at the, uh, end of the day and frequently it's just me on the beach and the sun is setting and a heron will glide down and just land right next to me. Uh, the other day there were two um, sea lions playing in the water and every time I think to myself, you, know, you can't get this in the gym. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you've talked about this, uh, I love this idea of biophilic nourishment. Mm -hmm. right? we're, we've talked a lot about how the human body needs movement as a nourishment but it also needs connection to nature in general. Right. So I, I really wanted to get your kind of description of, of what is this, this biophilia and why do we need it? Well, the word biophilia literally means love of life. And it was made popular by E.O. Wilson. And he described it as the innate 
tendency for human beings to affiliate with the natural world. And of course, it's not just humans because every animal will try and seek out a natural environment that, that suits itself. It nourishes us, I think, in, in so many ways, but the, the classic example is light. I mean, that's the synchronizing force. Natural light will synchronize through the master clock and then all the distributed clocks through our body. Our physiology literally depends on that synchronization that happens ideally every day at dawn. And we miss out on that too much. But biophilia is an interesting idea because I think there's, there's individual variation there. Some people are just like us. We really, really are drawn to nature. And other people seem to take it or leave it. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. Um, some people don't feel the compelling need to get out as much. And I wonder about that. But... Um, but there's no getting around what it does for us. I mean, um, every system in the body depends on that contact. As far as why people, why some people are more attracted to it, I think there's probably a lot of individual variation, but I also wonder about the role of exposure. Mm. Like I grew up in the woods, you know, you have a beautiful passage in your book about the creek that you used to right, you know, right. go to every day. And what I, th I think that it's, Again, it's like that appetite that we have, but if it's shut down, mm -hmm. it it doesn't develop normal, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Kids have an appetite for movement, and we put them in a chair and tell them, "You can't run here, you can't jump here, you can't dive here, you can't wrestle anywhere." And so we develop a culture of people who view movement as drudgery and right. don't like it, right? And and so I think that's a big part of why so many people are slothful. It's not that they couldn't have a love for movement. It's right. that they, uh, they're stuck in a place where they can't. And I think the same thing is probably true to some degree that, that people are really intimidated by nature and they're overwhelmed <laughs> by it. When I take people out to train in the woods, a lot of people are surprisingly intimidated just by mm -hmm. having mm -hmm. dirt on their hands. Right. It's right. overwhelming to them. Right. Yeah. To, to bridge on that, people now are starting to talk about the flip side of biophilia, which is biophobia. And college students now, some of them report being either apathetic toward nature or they, they just don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, and other people overreact to the, the so-called dangers of being outdoors. I was going up a local trail here just yesterday and I was only up um, a few hundred yards from the parking lot, met a woman, and she had one of these uh, bear uh, defense canisters ready to take on the bears. And you know, you're lucky to see one bear here a year, and that's you're lucky if you see one. <laughs> so people are frightened, and it's um, it probably just comes from the fact that they never never got to know the outdoors. Yeah. So yeah, that's. It's a really good point of, of, of how frightened we are in general of things. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to touch on that. I'm going to just check the cameras one more okay. time. Okay. Let's get on this camera. This camera died.
how long will those cards go for? I, I totally meant to start. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't check, yeah. <laughs> so this idea of, um, of risk that you talked about, mm. people are afraid of the risk inherent in the natural environment, um, is a really interesting aspect of movement culture in general. Mm -hmm. People see what I do, and they say, oh, you're going to get hurt, or oh, someone's going to get hurt, you know. Don't climb. Like the reason that we tell kids not to climb trees is because they'll get hurt. The reason right. that they're not allowed to wrestle is because they'll get hurt. But we're essentially telling them to just stop acting like a human being. <laughs> right. And there's a there's a risk involved in not being a human being, which is that you're less happy and less competent mm -hmm. and less capable in the world. So it's another one of these interesting mismatches because we've created a world that's safer than we've ever had. And so we almost have, we're almost become allergic to risk in the same yes, sense that yes. we're supposed to have an immune system that's calibrated on microbes in the soil. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to have a perception of risk that's calibrated through actually having experienced some. Right. And all you got to do is think about ancestral native populations and how risky that would have been. That was our standard life. Mm -hmm. Every day was risk. And it wasn't until, uh, what was it, 16th century, the maritime industry started to develop insurance policies for the ships that would go out with their cargo. And then insurance, we started to spread the risk around to people. And now we've come to expect that as being normal, but it's, it's not. Mm -hmm. I mean, being an animal on this earth is risky and it always has been and we gain power by engaging with that risk yeah we we insulating yourself from risk makes you more vulnerable to it in the long run yes yes biting off just enough risk over and over again is what makes you actually robust to it right right <laughs> i think we're done on that card okay um, <laughs> So, um, one question I wanted to really dig into before we're done here is this question that I'm really interested in of, of how to train a human like a human being. Mm. You've talked about the idea in your book that we, we sort of have the wrong um, model of, of how we're training. We're training like herbivores. Right. Oh, right. Um, and I've thought about this as a, this idea of kind of an imbalance between the savanna adaption of a human being, mm -hmm. the jungle adaption of a human mm -hmm. being. So if we look at a savanna environment or an arid environment, the ability to traverse a long distance becomes really important. Mm -hmm. And there's less obstacles that you have to deal with in that environment. If you look at a, a jungle, on the other hand, the obstacle is the thing. Right? right. Like You're always struggling to get over things. And, and you can look at the populations that, that come from these and see very different physical adaptions, very different cultural traditions. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a culture right now that, for most people, really prizes how far can you go. Right. <laughs> and not so much how complex can you mm -hmm. handle. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a... It's an imbalance, and I'm just curious for your thoughts on that and how you've seen that develop for, you know, seeing the aerobics 
thing come and go and right. now, now there's movement culture now there's parkour you know how do you see that balance coming out yeah well after reading chris mcdougall's book born to run mm -hmm. i i felt like he painted kind of a um unbalanced picture of human evolution because for him it's all about long distance running chasing down animals and that being the standard mm -hmm. in human evolution and i don't doubt that that happened probably a lot and i'm sure that every tribe had certain hunters that were capable of these long distance aerobic feats but is that the standard well, I, I don't think so, because there was also a lot of walking and gathering and opportunistic hunting and dealing with different kinds of terrain. And we focus, I think, in the modern world, we focus on aerobic exercise because it's easy to test. It's easy to measure. And we it's really easy to do. Uh, John Rady in his book, Spark, he talks about the fact that it's really easy to do laboratory tests on rats because you can get them to run on a running wheel and mimic aerobic exercise and then you can collect all this data and then you can you can point to the values of aerobic exercise and so i think the the exercise culture is really skewed now towards aerobic endurance monotonous exercise because we've studied it a lot and I think what's going to happen is we're going to find similar benefits to every kind of movement that we do. But the complexity that you speak of in an arboreal environment, I think that's huge. And it's bound to have good cognitive payoffs and good psychological payoffs just because it's so fun to move in three planes at once rather than that single plane movement. And you know, there's something, I, I'm sure that there's a, a link between the kinds of movement we do and the cognition that we have and the kind of ideas that we produce. And I think we, we value aerobic exercise because it produces certain kinds of cognition. And it really ties into corporate culture where there's really a strong value placed on endurance and perseverance, persistence. But... Um, you know, what about dance? What about moving in a three-dimensional environment? That kind of um, physical experience is bound to make us more creative. So training the human animal, training people like people, humans like humans, um, I think you've got to do all of the above. Yeah. And um, let people have that diversity of, uh, of experience. And that's the beauty of going outside because you get a lot of that. Mm -hmm. uh, machines are inherently monotonous. <laughs> Even the best machines, best exercise machines, you figure them out pretty fast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think even, you know, a lot of this kind of up and coming movement culture, a lot of people are, are, are doing most of it on flat ground. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of patterns, quadrupedal movement that's on flat ground. You know, within the parkour community, it's a lot of flat surfaces, even if there are variations in them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a lot of flat surfaces. And I think that there, there's really a, a lot that's missed there. As soon as you get into a tree and you have so many dimensions of movement to have to kind of process, I really do think that it is better cognitive food. Right, right. Um, there's a author, Tracy Alloway, a, a, a researcher. 
do a study recently on tree climbing and found mm -hmm. that it has mm -hmm. pretty profound effects on working memory. Right, um, right. We really should to see if we can get some some corroboration of that over time. Yeah. But yeah, I, I completely agree that you know we we've overemphasized aerobics because of because of the ability to measure. And really in the same sense, something like bodybuilding, it's easy to measure mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. change in muscular size. Right. It's much more difficult to measure a change in movement quality mm -hmm. or a change in cognitive state due to movement. Right, right. But uh, I think that we are, we're definitely seeing a turnaround there. And I hope, I hope though that, you know, it's interesting because science is so powerful. I love science, but if I look back at the history of science and I see all the times when science led us down this road that people just jump way too far away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then their, their, their justification for jumping to the next thing is more science. Right. I mean, science is the best and most robust tool for creating knowledge that there ever has been. But I think that there's a, there's a tendency to look at any scientific result as the truth mm -hmm, mm -hmm. rather than as a specific set of information that's very limited based on the context of the way that the study was created. Right, right, exactly. And I, I feel the same way. I love science, but science is a brand new thing. And if you look at human history, 99.99% like of human history, knowledge was gained through experience. And that worked for us. And we couldn't... We can rely on it. And we have traditions of dance, traditions of martial arts, traditions of movement that, that are thousands of years old. Right. And if we, we start cross-comparing it, if we look at European martial arts traditions and Japanese and Chinese martial arts tradition, we find a lot of the same things. Mm -hmm. right? We find that they lifted heavy things in order to become stronger to apply to the sport. Right. In fact, the Seneca, you know, the Stoic philosopher talking about this, we find that you know, they practiced acrobatics. Right. They practiced breakfalls. Mm -hmm. Everything that's, that's, that's being sort of rediscovered right now as part of movement culture, it's not that new. Right, right. But when we become so dependent on trying to justify things off of the newest thing, mm -hmm. instead mm -hmm. of looking at that long body history, right. I think that it, uh, it results in bigger pendulum swings away from kind of the mean of the right practice. Right, right. Yeah, we're, well, again, we're, so many of us are trying to be professional, you know, and, and to be professional means to be scientific and to measure everything, but it's not always necessary. And you can be a professional and put the emphasis on experience. That's a perfectly valid way to go because the body, the body has plenty of capability to learn the world without scientific measurement. It doesn't have to happen. I had a profound moment of learning with that where I, uh, I really based the, the development of the uh, curriculum at Parkour Visions, which is the parkour gym that I started, <clears throat> on the best science that I could find. And it was all about how do I create progressions that are going to allow people to attain skills as right. quickly as possible. And one of our coaches um, was a brilliant young woman, Brandy Laird. She she was more resistant than a lot of our coaches to kind of the dictates that I put out. And we, we negotiated a kind of a solution where she was able to coach and it was enough like what I wanted and she was doing her thing and she was satisfied. And over time, 
she started attracting really big crowds for classes. And people who came out of her classes were like, Brandy's classes are magic. They're amazing. And so I was like, okay, I've been giving everyone the curriculum. Now I'm going to start harvesting the, the strength of the other coaches. So I sat down with, with Brandy and asked, what is the secret? Why do people think your cl uh, uh, classes are magic? And essentially what she told me was that I viewed coaching as a science. And she viewed it as a performance art. Mm -hmm. And that her whole goal with a class was less to create the optimal progression within that class and more to create a profound experience that would be highly rewarding for the individual so that they want to continue because they would progress if they kept doing it mm -hmm. and they would keep doing it if it was really rewarding. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just a profound kind of lesson for all of physical culture to right, take right. is that those of us who are teachers to be able to focus on the story that we're telling and the experience that we're giving. Right. And for those of us who are, are practitioners, to let that be part of it too. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just about knocking off these goals. It's about telling yourself this great story. If you have a great story about why you're training, you're a lot more likely to keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Brandy's the head coach at Parkour Visions now. She's awesome. So if you guys get a chance, okay. go say hi to her. Well, her, her suggestion around art, mm -hmm. I think is extremely powerful because you know, for me, the starting point so often is mismatch. And I say, you know, here we are, these aboriginal bodies in this modern world, we've got this problem. And what's the solution to mismatch? If you look for one solution, it's pretty tough. I mean, there's, there's so many different people in so many different circumstances. How do you come up with one solution for mismatch? You can't. But if you put the emphasis on art and creativity, now, maybe you can come up with 7 billion workable solutions to mismatch. And that, I think, is a way forward because um, we're, all, we're all groping for that. You know, lifestyle, lifestyle disease, trying to find a workable lifestyle in this mismatched environment, that demands creativity. And that's where the, the movement teachers come in and say, we can help you with that. <laughs> we can help you be more creative in the way that you move, but also in the way that you live and the way that you adapt to mismatch. Yeah. So we, we provide a very valuable service to the, to the world right now. That's great. I think that's a good place to kind of close our conversation for the day. Okay. Thank you so much, Frank. Thank, Thank you. Thank you guys for your attention. Um, it was a wonderful uh, chance to converse with you, and I hope that people really can take some great lessons from it. I thought it was awesome. Thank you so much.